Good evening, everybody. Thank you all for coming. Now, it is a, a most curious thing that while at every level in this world of ours, it seems to be based on difference, different races, different religions, different loyalties, different languages, different traditions, and indeed, as we in Ireland know only too well, often difference so compelling as to become murderous. It is curious that at the same time, everywhere we look, there is this unrelenting thrust towards unity. Wherever men gather, they will seek to come together to unite, to form clubs, associations, political or religious groups, somewhere to belong, whether at the level of the most primitive tribe or the most sophisticated society. The European Union, the Credit Union, the United States of America, the United Nations, the United Kingdom, Manchester United, the Trades Union, the Employers Union, even the Amalgamated Unions Union. And then there is the progressive unity of family, neighborhood, county, and province. And finally, setting aside all differences to unite in the face of any threat to the state itself, or even indeed for an international football match. The handshake, the bear hug, and the kiss all unite immediately as our fondest expressions of love and peace. Recently, we have witnessed the changeover to the Euro, where 300 million people on one day set aside their beloved punts, francs, and Deutschmarks and united under a single currency, this being another step in the vision which seeks to put an end to war in Europe by uniting and removing difference. Curiously, even the apparent opposite to unity, the passionate quest for independence, even this arises out of the same sense of unity. Indeed, faced with the prospect that even the most implacable enemies are united, if only in their mutual hatred, gives rise to the question, pursued by philosophy and science alike, is, in fact, everything ultimately united? Is there an underlying unity? And if so, what is its nature? How may it be known? How may it be proved? And what, if anything, has it got to do with me? Where does the truth about the creation lie? In unity or in difference? Now, for us, this question is not just a matter of idle curiosity. Rather, this is a question which goes right to the heart of the matter, the search for truth itself, and this being the proper business of man, 
our topic this evening could not be more appropriate. So first of all, let us be sure what we are talking about when we speak of unity. At a party recently, the guests were seated in groups around small tables, and then they were invited to collect their supper from another room and return to their own tables and to eat it. And one group did not move, stayed put. And when they were asked why they had not moved, they said they were defending their seats. So they would wait until everyone else was seated before venturing out in order that they could return and be reunited as a group at their table. Now this is not the kind of unity that we're talking about. This is the me and everybody else kind of unity. Me and the world. Nor indeed are we talking about the exclusive unity of the like-minded. Unionism, loyalism, nationalism, communism, all these offer a kind of partial unity, which is, of course, a contradiction in terms and not the real unity. The real unity pursued by the sages and scientists alike is that ultimate unity, that one without a second which knows no other, where there are no exclusions, described simply by the sages as a dwighter, or not to, or as the scientists would describe it, the unified field. That ultimate unity, out of which everything arises and into which everything returns, including you and me. It is interesting that both the sage and the scientist, by their very striving, give testimony to their conviction that such unity does exist. 2,500 years ago, Plato inquired, what is that which is ever becoming and never is? And what is that which is and has no becoming? Einstein, in spite of the fact that it occupied more of his years than any other activity, died convinced that while he had not discovered the unified field, someday somebody would find it. His conviction was that strong. In striking contrast, the sages say that they have long since solved the question of the unity of everything. So what do they do? How do they make the breakthrough when the search is still going on with our brightest modern scientific minds? Now it appears that both the sage and the scientist did start out together using observation as their common tool. However, they used it in completely different ways. So for a moment, let's take a look at observation. 
From this slide, you can see that observation has three parts. First, you could not have an observation unless there was an observer or knower. Second, you would need something to be observed or known. And the third part is the observation itself arising out of the polarity of these two. So let's be absolutely clear about that. Without an observer or a knower, no observation is possible. Similarly, without a known, no observation is possible. Both are necessary. So wherever there is a known, there must be a knower. Wherever there is a known, there must be a knower. You happy with that? Now the significant difference between the scientist and the sage was they started at opposite ends of this diagram and used radically different approaches. The scientist investigating the known end of the diagram while the sage investigated the observing self or the knower end of the diagram. The explanation for these different starting points can be found in two aspects of the mind. On the one hand, you have the thinking scientific aspect of the mind clearly favored by the scientists. This aspect of the mind works with the attention turned out, working through the senses with what can be seen, touched, measured, based on calculation and proofs, seeking all the time to understand. And of course, all of us would be familiar with that aspect of the mind, which we use all the time in our day-to-day -day activities. On the other hand, the sage's preferred approach was to use the intuitive aspect of the mind. And here, the silent seat of reason in us, the attention is turned back based on stillness, meditation, and insight, seeking to transcend the knower to discern the ultimate substance. So, in the search for the ultimate unity, the scientist asks, what is this world? Why the sage asks, what am I? Now the scientist, in asking what is this world and what is its unifying cause, seeks to discover the truth about the world by examining it from top to bottom. From the vastness of the universe to the equally vast reaches of the subatomic world. However, as a consequence of this long, exciting, intriguing process, he is led, not surprisingly, to ever greater and greater complexity. And this complexity arises as the universe tantalizingly expands in both directions with every new discovery made. 
In sharp contrast, the genius of the sage in pursuit of the question, what am I, made rapid progress. The sages early on realized that when unity is the goal, it must lie in the path of simplicity, not complexity. For nothing could be simpler than unity. Nothing could be simpler than one. And then the further brilliant insight that any individual looking, that is, me looking, necessarily sees everything else as other, and so could never offer the prospect of unity. For example, as long as I am up here, looking at you down there, there is other. And where there is other, there is not unity. So, as distinct from the scientist, the sage sought to discover the truth about himself, the knower, by moving the other way. Through surrender, insight, meditation, and stillness. And significantly in this process, moving from complexity to greater and greater simplicity. Now it has to be said that even though working in these alternative ways, where the starting point is different for each and the journey lies in opposite directions, when the object of the search is unity or oneness, it does not matter where you start or which way you are headed. Ultimately, in reaching unity, you must come to the same. It could be that one route would take a little longer, that's all. So perhaps it's not so surprising that in spite of the different methods used, and the different directions taken, both these journeys have led to remarkably similar conclusions. However, notably, the journey of the sage has been the quickest by far. The sage, having made the breakthrough thousands of years ago, while it has literally taken the scientific approach all those thousands of years to just about catch up. So we should take a look at what happened. The sage's pursuit of the question, what am I, led to three groundbreaking discoveries. First, as with everything else that we see and know in this world, this body, mind and nature are all under observation. And therefore, they are the known. And so they cannot be ultimate. Are you happy with that? Body, mind, and nature under observation, therefore they are the known, and they cannot be ultimate, because where there is a known, there must be a knower. Further back. Second breakthrough was, was this. It was obvious from the start that the known is always changing, always appearing and disappearing, coming and going. For example, in the physical world, this meeting appears when we all come together, and it will disappear when we finish. But similarly, in the mental world, all our thoughts and feelings come and go and change at the drop of a hat. And although not quite so obvious as in the physical world, the sages also realize that all this mental activity, 
was under observation as well. Just as right now, we are aware of whatever is going on in our minds. Maybe interest and agreement, or boredom and disbelief. It doesn't matter. What does matter is the realization that even our innermost secret thoughts and feelings and sensations are all observed and therefore belong to the known end of the diagram. So they cannot be ultimate either. As we have discussed, where there is a known, there must be a knower. Pointing to that in us, whatever it is, which is simply aware of whatever is in the mind, irrespective of whether that is understanding or confusion. Now reason tells us that that which knows the changeable must itself be unchangeable. Let's take a look at that for a second. Now, can I ask you if, if that's a perfect circle or not? It's not? <laughs> but is that a perfect circle or not? Anybody else? No? Is it is, is not a perfect is, is a perfect circle or not? No. Okay, how do you know it's not a perfect circle? Right. Right. The reason you can tell it's not perfect is that we know what a perfect circle is. And we know that that's not perfect by contrasting it with our knowledge of the perfect. All right? And similarly with the changeable. The same argument applies that that which knows the changeable must itself be unchangeable. It would know it by contrast. Now this quality of unchanging is significant because it was the fundamental criteria that the sages were looking for as the hallmark of what is true or real. In other words, if something is subject to change, how can it be real or true? The first quality of what is true or real must be that it is immutable and not subject to change. And then the third breakthrough led to the understanding, and this is a bit more challenging, but nonetheless, here it is, that you could not have a knower who did not know. You could not have a knower who did not know. Nor could you have a knower who was not conscious. And arising out of this observation, unchanging knowledge and consciousness were realized as attributes or qualities of whatever it is or whatever it was that lay beyond. So let's see if we can summarize that for you. The phenomenal world, including me and all the contents of my mind, are all part of the known and therefore under observation and therefore not ultimate. 
While the known is always changing, always coming and going, that which knows the changing must itself be unchanging. And a knower must know and be conscious. The question then was how to attain this ultimate as clearly it would lie further back than our finest thought or our most penetrating insight. And here the simple but brilliant solution was to seek to unite with it by moving from knowing to being, by leaving thinking and simply being. Now clearly now, observation itself could no longer help because observation made two, known or unknown. Observation was now an obstacle and had to go as the words of Jesus remind us, when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So, in the surrender of the individual observer, the ego, the I know, final proof was achieved through merging with the awareness or consciousness itself. As the sages described it, all separation and difference disappeared just as a salt doll would merge with the ocean and leave no trace. And this surrender, the sages described as realization of the truth or realization of the self and characterized it as blissful. And so now a third quality had been discerned to add to the unchanging knowledge of the knower, consciousness, and now you had the third quality, bliss. Knowledge, consciousness, and bliss. And here then, with the surrender of the individual perspective, the ego, and all its works, the true unity was realized. That simple awareness, beyond all difference, in which everything arose without itself changing in any way or being affected in any way. And of course, being unchangeable, it was also eternal and indestructible. And this the sages proclaimed as the ultimate truth about myself, yourself, the self of all. The unified field, the unchanging reality with its qualities of knowledge, consciousness and bliss, absolute. And there is strong empirical evidence for these three aspects or qualities in the ordinary run of life. In that everything we do is done for just one of three reasons. We do it either to know, to live a full life, or to be happy. Knowledge, consciousness, and bliss. And each of these offering a clear reflection of the threefold nature of the true self working in us. 
And we can put that to the test now, with your help, by asking you this simple question, asking you, why did you come here this evening? Okay, it's short and succinctly. <laughs> So to be happy, okay? Why did you come this evening? To know. Why did you come this evening? To know. To know? To be happy, enjoyable. To know. To know. Uh, to be happy. To know. To know. Right. Both will do. Both will do. Right. To know. Okay. And you'll find if you look at this that everything we do in our lives comes down to these three primordial forces. We either to know, to live a full life, or to be happy. Reflecting these three qualities of the true self. Now, having realized the ultimate substance, this is a further insight. Having realized the ultimate substance, then all the ever-changing phenomena of the world were also known to be not real, but simply wonderful, beautiful, enjoyable, different appearances on the face of this underlying reality. And this led in turn to the even more startling realization that this continually changing and fascinating world of difference that we see everywhere had in fact no independent existence. It existed in name and shape only on the face of the underlying consciousness. Now this ultimate insight they tried to explain to the rest of us by various analogies. The waves on the ocean, for example. The waves exist, but they have no independent or separate existence apart from the underlying ocean. So in this sense, their existence is apparent, not real. There is the appearance of two, waves and ocean, but in reality, there is only one, ocean. Similarly, with the unchanging gold and the ever-changing artifacts made from it, the ring and the cufflinks are simply different, temporary appearances on the same unchanging gold. A ring and cufflinks are very different, but they are different in name and shape only, or function as well, but fundamentally, they are the same gold. They have no independent existence apart from gold. Whatever happens, happens only to the ring or the cufflinks. The gold remains gold. So again, there is the convincing appearance of two, but in reality, there's only one. The appearance has no real independent existence. We don't have a cup and saucer here, but you could use the same analogy. 
the cup and the saucer appear as two, appear as different, but fundamentally or essentially they are just the same clay, appearing different as name and shape and function. Clay remains clay throughout. When you see them as a cup and saucer, what are you using to observe them? One of the senses, sight, and when you acknowledge them as simply clay, what are you using to observe them? You can't see the clay, you see the cup and saucer. What do you use at that time? Imagination or? It's more definite than imagination. Fact, and what is the quality in us that recognizes what's true? Reason. So you look at them through the senses, you see difference, and you consider them through reason, and you see the same. So here you have the cup and saucer, they're temporary, different, useful appearances on the real, unchanging substance, the underlying clay. At the level of appearance, they are quite different and separate. However, these names and shapes cannot exist apart from the underlying, unchanging clay. Now here's the crux of the matter for us. When relying just on the senses, it easily happens that we take the upfront appearances to be real. We see only difference, opposite and other. And in the world of the senses, seeing is believing. And so looking no further, difference, opposite and other, the ever-changing, are taken to be the reality. And from that simple error, even the very heart of the Christian teaching to love one another seems impossible because so often the differences are just too great and all kinds of misery, the inevitable fruit of such ignorance. However, the guidance of the sages and with the help of reason, we can see past the beguiling, different, ever-changing appearances and discover the underlying unity, that which is the same. And then, love, happiness, and contentment must ensue. And the way is open to love our neighbor literally as ourself. There is a fanciful story told of a tree that lived in the forest and was holy itself and content, but desiring to be many, it attracted the attention of a passing woodcutter who cut it down and brought the tree to the factory, stripped off the branches and cut the tree into two halves. And out of one half made a beautiful table and out of the other half a beautiful set of chairs. Put them in the window and a passing merchant bought them and put them in his home and where they served the family very well for study, for meals, for conversation and so on. And this went on happily until one day, one day the chairs got together and in a huddle said, we're getting a bum deal around here. Every day we're sat on and used 
for this family to have their meals and to study. This is not good enough. We would like to be treated the same as the table. This is a kind of discrimination. And on the instant, misery entered the situation. There was no longer the happiness or contentment. However, the story has a happy ending in that in conversation with a wise man who happened to come by, the chairs overheard the wise man saying that everything exists in name and shape only, and that beyond the name and shape and function, there was that which was the same, absolutely the same. And they were reminded of their sameness and peace and happiness and contentment returned. <laughs> the message from those who have realized the truth is always the same. It's simple, sure, and uncomplicated. Pursue the question, what am I? And the method, be still. Be at rest. And simply allow, I know, I want to know, I don't know, and all the derivatives to dissolve. And the shift from thinking to being takes place. The wisdom of the sages clearly demonstrated these knowings and not knowings. While friendly allies in the conduct of our worldly affairs, they are in fact the very obstacles which keep us from realizing the underlying unity. So the unequivocal advice of the sages is to be still, difference will dissolve, to reveal the unchanging peace and unity and happiness of your true self. Always there, always available, always accessible, and always satisfying. And then having realized it, then deal with the world as the appearance or drama that it is, in the certain realization that come what may, nothing can affect the peace and bliss of my true self. Now these are substantial claims by the wise. What I thought we would do is, just together, is do a little exercise together to see how far we can follow their direction and discover, if we can in our own experience, the truth or otherwise of what they're saying. So this is an exercise which will require your best attention and it's also an exercise related to hearing. So if you're comfortable and you want to close your eyes and just concentrate on the hearing and see what this shows us in relation to what the sages have been saying. So to start with, just allow all the sounds, the immediate sounds around us, to come and go as they will. And perhaps notice immediately that the sounds rise and fall, come and go, while the hearing simply is. The hearing doesn't move, the sounds are continually moving and changing. 
So let the hearing expand to include all the sounds within and without, and perhaps even to the furthest and gentlest sounds. Now see if it's possible to let go of the idea of me hearing, just for a moment. And in reason, face these questions. Is the hearing that I'm aware of now the same hearing that my neighbor is using? Now, the sounds we hear may be different, but is the hearing not the same? Is this hearing not the same hearing that was used last year or 10 years ago or 30 years ago? Is this hearing not the same hearing used by Mozart and Socrates? Is this hearing conscious? Are unconscious. Even when we're asleep, is it still aware so that we can hear a knock or our name called? Is not this hearing the witness of all the sounds that have ever been heard or that ever will be heard? Is this hearing not eternal? and unchanging. Is there not, right now in all of us, even at the level of hearing, that which does not change, which is eternal and the same? Well, that's where the sages have taken us. So it might be no harm just for a few moments to have a look at how the slow coach scientists have been getting on. Well, clearly, they've been all over the world. While it has taken much longer, they have also taken three significant, even giant steps in the search for the underlying unity. To start with, the comfortable certainties of the classical physics of Isaac Newton, where the universe was seen as a convincing collection of separate solid things operating in space and time, were shattered in 1905 by Einstein's relativity theory, when he proposed that space and time were not separate entities, but rather part of a four-dimensional continuum, which he called space-time. 
That is, that you could not talk about space without talking about time, and vice versa. Einstein himself jokingly explained it this way. He said that two hours with a beautiful girl can seem like two minutes, while two minutes on a boiling stove can seem like two hours. Time was not an absolute separate commodity. It had no independent existence, but was relative always to the observer. And if that wasn't a big enough shock, he further went on to propose that energy and mass were not concrete, separate entities, but simply different manifestations of the same thing. Mass was nothing but a form of energy, and you will recall that he expressed this in his famous formula, E equals mc squared. So the scientists, unlike the sages, moved from certainty to uncertainty. In fact, they moved to quantum theory, where seeking to cope with the literally earth-shattering findings of Einstein's findings, they resorted to probability as the fundamental feature which governs the existence of matter. Subatomic particles do not exist as certainties, but only show tendencies to exist. But even more significant, more intriguing, they report that in the complex experiments seeking to measure these particles, this extraordinary discovery that if the preparation to measure is modified, that if the knower is modified in any way, the properties of the particle change also, the known. And this, irrespective of whether the experiment is close together or worlds apart. It is a bit like if one of the parties to an argument changes their position, the other party is immediately affected. They have that connection. So quantum theory thus reveals an essential interconnectedness of the universe. It shows we cannot decompose the universe into independently existing smallest units. For even at this level, the knower and the known cannot exist independent of each other. You change one, the other is changed. So that was the second breakthrough, and the third breakthrough brings us right up to date. I think you'll find this particularly interesting. This brings us up to 1980, in fact. We're quietly on the scene. David Bowen, a professor of theoretical physics and a former colleague of Einstein's, introduced the world to a new theory which he called the implicate order and which in a bold step allowed physicists to view reality in a unified way. And indeed, it comes within a hair's breadth of bridging the gap between the scientists and the sages. Now the illustration he used to explain his theory is as follows. Let's see what you make of this. 
This is the normal way we see reality. The images on the TV screens represent the way we see reality as different objects. However, in this circumstance, every time the fin on screen one wriggles, the fish on screen two moves forward. Every time, you got that? Every time this fin moves, this fish moves forward. And you've got two independent things, and the two screens, by all physical laws, known physical laws, appear to be unconnected by any force or signals, even photons, light. Okay? Now, here's how the scientists dealt with that phenomenon. Relativity says that this situation is impossible. It is impossible because there's no detectable connections. The only way an image on screen one could be correlated with that on screen two would be that if some signal traveling faster than the speed of light were being transmitted, and relativity has shown that nothing can travel faster than light. So relativity can't explain it. Okay? Quantum theory says we've always predicted this situation, the connectedness of everything. It's in the equations of quantum theory that the image on screen one should be correlated with the image on screen two, but don't ask us why. We stick to describing what can be observed. The implicate order, this is David Bohm, 1980, this is what he said. Implicate order says, yes, as quantum theory predicted, the images on screen one and two should be correlated, not because any signal has passed from one to the other telling the other what to do, but simply because screens one and two are simply showing two different views of the same object. What you have is a fish in a tank in the basement with two cameras, two different views of the same object appearing separately on the ground floor. This is behind the phenomenal world. This is the correlation. And what David Bohm says is that this provides a world view that suggests that both the material world and consciousness are parts of a single, unbroken totality of movement. You can't see the connection at the level of the physical. They appear separate and unconnected in any way. You just go one step back. In this case, the example is the fish in the basement. The implicate order is a level of reality beyond our normal, everyday thoughts and perceptions. Now, it's important just to hear what you... This is a theoretical physicist talking, not a sage. A level of reality beyond our normal, everyday thoughts and perceptions, as well as beyond any picture of reality offered or given by a scientific theory. Compare that with the wisdom of the ages, the ancient descriptions, this one from the Mundaka Upanishad. We've had David Bohm's description, and this is what uh, the Mundaka Upanishad says. The wise realize everywhere that which cannot be perceived or grasped. Without source, features, eyes and ears, neither hands nor feet, eternal, multiformed, all-pervasive, extremely subtle and undiminishing, and which is the source of all. Pointing us again beyond the physical, beyond the phenomenal, to that which cannot be grasped. 
in the sacred text from the East, the Bhagavad Gita, a devotional work, you have this language in devotional terms, the whole world is pervaded by me, yet my form is not seen. All living things have their being in me, yet I am not limited by them. I don't know if you can make the connection with the cup and saucer and the clay, the analogy and the teaching of the wise. In the Gospel of St. John, more familiar to us in the Christian tradition, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then this line that often goes unnoticed, the same was in the beginning with God. What does that mean? And so, ladies and gentlemen, you have to face this question in our short journey here, the prospect that the scientific community, certainly some part of the scientific community, having moved from certainty to uncertainty, have taken that crucial step from the physical into the metaphysical. The implicate order is a level of reality beyond our normal everyday thoughts and perceptions, as well as beyond any picture of reality offered by a given scientific theory. Are the scientists and the sage not saying the same thing? Thank you very much. Good night, everybody. Thank you very much. So, ladies and gentlemen, the proposal is now that we might have some conversation on these two aspects of this topic. What is the truth about myself? the truth about the creation as they've been explored in the talk there and see what further we might just bring out in a question and answer. So if there's anybody who would like to start the ball rolling, that's probably the best thing to do. Would you review again the steps from recognizing that everything we do is for the same three reasons and this openness to love thy neighbor as thyself. Right. Well, thank you very much. Yes, well, the sages, in their investigation of as to what am I, made these three discoveries. They realized that, just as the previous conversation was there, that I am the knower rather than the known. So the knower is the knowledge. The knower is also conscious. You can't have a knower who doesn't know, you can't have a knower who is unconscious. And in the pursuit of that, seeking to unite with it, to move from thinking about it to actually being it, they described that as being blissful. So you had these three elements which were given as the qualities of that ultimate self. It is knowledge absolute. Consciousness, absolute, and bliss, absolute. The connection between that and the great Christian teaching is that if we do not understand the sameness which underlies all this phenomenal world, and we try to meet the Christian teaching, which is to love one another, and we just meet on the surface which is where the differences are, Christianity seems like an impossible discipline.
because the differences are so acute. And the key to it, which turns that difficulty into being easy, if you like, is to see past the differences, which are the phenomenal appearances, to that which lies beyond, which is the same, yourself and myself, the same. So the instruction to love your neighbor as yourself is a direction, and it is also possible at the level of the same. You literally love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same self. It's not different. One level, very different. Here in Ireland, as you know, it's murderous difference. Incidentally, both communities being both doing their business in the name of God, you know, <laughs> but opposite business. So the key seems to be to be able to see past the difference to that which is the same. And then the whole key to, which is what we're more accustomed to in the West, the Christian faith, opens up. It is possible. Not only is it possible, it is a statement of truth to love your neighbor as yourself. There's a gentleman here. Do you agree with the statement that the observer is the observed? The reason I bring it up is this guy, Professor Bohm, was a friend of a guy called Krishnamurti who very often stated that. So would that be part of your view? Because if, if it's not, you have duality. Just give me, give me the statement again. That the observer is the observed. Right. If you, if you look at the diagram, I've just put the diagram away, I didn't think we needed it, but you, you remember it anyway. There's an observer at one end and there's the observed at the other end. And out of that polarity you get your observation. But there's also only one line on the board. So that at one level, at a fine level, the level that we try to get to this evening, you can see that what is observed is merely an aspect of the observer. So you could say, that it is. That it is. Right. That they are not different. The difficulty for us is, or the mistake that we make is, that we think the observed is independent, separate, real. Separate from us. Separate, yes. And we take the appearance to be real and miss the true. We take the difference to be real and miss the same. So in the concepts of implicate order, whatever it was, they reach the same conclusion, that the observer is the observed. Yeah, well, in his illustration, in the illustration that was used there, David Bohm was merely making the point that our normal view of reality through the senses is to see fish one, fish two. Fish one's tail moves, fish two moves forward. No connection between them. Unless you know about what's behind, in that case, the fish in the basement with the two cameras, unless you know what's behind, you cannot see the connection. You just meet the difference, and they're irreconcilable differences. So basically, it's one to totality, one process then we're talking about. That's right. Where everything is not just in theory related to everything else, but in actual fact, moment by moment. Not just in theory related to everything else, is a manifestation of the same. Notice that's the enlightened view. The ordinary view is that everything is different. We're all different here. We've got different bodies, different personalities, and so on. But behind all of these different shapes and forms, there is that in us which is the same. It is that which enlivens your question and enlivens this speech here. It's the same. That's what they're saying. 
And, and the scientists are saying the same thing now. I think it's a problem everybody has when they look into this area, whether to get involved in life or whatever, or to step back from it. And that brings in the question that I'm talking about. Right. That is a very good question. Just to, if I could make that point, the realization of what we're talking about this evening, that there is only one, is not a recipe for leaving the world. That's not what's nice. You engage fully with the world, but you don't make the mistake of thinking that the world and your connection with it, all of that is wonderful. It's all there to be enjoyed. It's wonderful. These are, if you like, the expressions of the beauty of that underlying reality. Well, it's not wonderful. Like, the world is in chaos and like people are having a rough time. I, I, I don't, or maybe I'm just looking from a different level. Well, you can see there are laws in the world and those laws are beautiful. Love one another being one of them. <laughs> if they are abandoned out of ignorance, then the inevitable consequence is misery. But I only put something to you, if I could. The precision of the law of cause and effect is in itself beautiful, even if the consequences are awful. It is so precise, so ordered, so fair, so just, that it is a thing of beauty in itself. It's absolutely just. At that level, it's beautiful. The consequences can be seen differently. But there is a, one further curious point, if I can make, that it's also happening at the level of appearance. And at the level of appearance, things come and go. And seeing beyond that to the unchanging is where the bliss is, where that in us is not affected by anything. Anything. There's that in us which is not subject. There's nothing to fear, nothing to lose. So there is great comfort or consolation in seeing beyond that fragile <laughs> appearance. Is that going anywhere near the point that you're... Yeah, it is. It's helping, it's, uh, helping clear something yeah. for me. Then why are so many of us ignorant? That's a very good question. <laughs> I think that's another talk, another night. <laughs> why is there so much ignorance in the world? I mean, there, if it's so simple, if the process is so simple, why haven't we all attained it? Yeah. Let me just see if I can just give a short answer to that. There are two accounts in the scriptures of the world which try to explain the fall of man. One of them is the one we're all familiar with, the Adam and Eve story. The other one is a bit more immediate, which it comes from the Eastern tradition. And it talks about this world of abundance for everybody. It still is that way. It's for, there's enough for everybody. But it says that somebody somewhere, sometime, wanted something for themselves without regard to how it was going to affect others. And evil entered the world. And if you pick up your newspaper tomorrow morning, that's the condition that you will find. Grasping for myself without regard to anybody else. So it's not a phenomenon that happened way back then. It's very with us. And that's how it seems to get in. Thinking me and no regard for others. And that separates. And once that separation happens, then it's all for me. And I don't care about the rest of you. So it's a very current phenomenon. Thanks for your, your talk, Michael. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I just wanted to ask you about the, your comments on, there seems to be an awful lot of people who are hell-bent on disunity. 
Yes. I accept the premise that, and in fact, it's fascinating if you look around the table, a simple, you know, a meeting or that, and if everybody crosses their legs one way, everybody does it exactly the same. Right. So I would agree with the principle that at a subconscious level, everybody does try to operate in unity, even the way they hold their, their hand to their head or something like that. I've often right. observed that. But it equally disturbs me that, you know, there are people who are hell-bent on disunity and make a full-time career of it. And it seems to me that for those who are trying to, you know, look at the, at the unity and the, the underlying, uh, I suppose... Truth? Yeah. Yeah. That uh, they've, they've a hell of a job ahead <laughs> of them yeah. in terms of the opposite of that. Yes. Well, th there is something useful in the fact that the realization of this truth of the underlying unity doesn't depend on everybody else agreeing with you or anything like that. It's possible that an individual man can make this connection in any circumstance. And from that point of view, there is great toleration rather than criticism of everybody else. The inclusiveness seems to come from the realization, getting beyond the difference. What drives people who are hell-bent on disunity is the ignorance of thinking that it's them against the rest. And if that's true, then they're on the right track, and if it's not true, and it's been put to us this evening that's not true, then they'll cause chaos. And they will be miserable themselves. They cannot be happy. They cannot be happy. Happiness is connected with the unity, not with separation. But do you not equally think that it's quite a stretch then to try and transcend those individuals when you meet them in life as we all do every day? That, you know, that they're, they're in the win-lose scenario or whatever yes. game they're playing. There is a curious thing, I just go from my own experience, is that as your own ego subsides, you are less inclined to be affected by others. Because it's usually that individual in us that gets hurt, that gets angry, that wants to change, all of that kind of thing. As that subsides, they can have a less effect on us. Unless they happen to be teenage sons or daughters, and that's a different kettle of fish. That's something else. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know whether I'm helping there at all or not, but there it is. There's a lady there. It's such an interesting topic. I'm delighted that you have found it interesting. This is actually a slight story uh, rather than a question. I did a course there a few weekends ago called Vision, which was given by a Catholic priest, and it was very much on the lines of unity, the abundance of God's love, and the different uh, examples you gave tonight there from the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, and the scriptures. But one very interesting thing he said, and with regard to sage, when you were talking about sages tonight, I thought it was very telling, coming from a Catholic priest. He said the three greatest Christians who ever lived, two of them lived before Christ. That was the Buddha, Socrates, and the third was Francis of Assisi. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was very good. <laughs> One out of three, yeah. <laughs> very good. Oh, that's interesting. So we say that the sages, philosophers, are searching for truth, and scientists presumably are searching for truth as well. Is it inevitable that we'll have a meeting of both? Yes. 
is I think that meeting in some cases, it doesn't, doesn't carry the entire scientific community with it, but I think it probably, those statements from Bohm that we were looking at there are as close as you can get. The only slight concern would be whether or not in that brilliant exposition and insight that he offered is whether he actually includes himself in the picture as well or he's still out there looking at it. If he's still out there looking at it, then there's a bit more to go. The sages are inclusive in their view of the creation. It includes mm -hmm. all of us. Didn't Einstein say uh, towards the end of his life that, what was it, I want to know the mind of God, the rest is only details. details. Correct. He did say that, yes. So he was on to something. <laughs> he was. Certainly was. Remarkable man. Certainly was. I thought one of his great succinct statements was he was asked about World War III. And what he said was, he says, I don't know what weapons will be used in World War III, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. That's, that's a <laughs> chastening statement. Man of great insight. Right. Yes, sir. Mr. Ryan, you, you said that when the sages address the question, what am I, they take the path of surrender. I wonder if you could say a little more about what is surrendered and how it comes about. Sure, sure. That's another excellent question. If you work on the basis of our simple diagram there of observation, whatever the mind produces is the known. Whatever I come up with, no matter how brilliant it is, it's the known. And I'm all the time left with that which knows it. Now, how do you move from that dilemma that everything I come up with, no matter how brilliant it is, it's over there and there's something that knows it? The obstacle to enlightenment seems to be our own brilliance, that we love working out things, understanding things, finding things out. The sages, by contrast, realize that whatever we find out, no matter how brilliant it is, will be the known. And I'm still left with that bit which knows. And they took this extraordinary step, which would never, probably never occur to me, but the extraordinary step is to surrender I know. It's an obstacle. It poses as a friend. It's an obstacle. The truth is not the product of my investigation. The truth is, and my investigation is going on somewhere on the surface of that. And so long as it keeps me on the surface, it will forever keep me from the realization of the truth. So what do I surrender? I surrender I know. I also surrender I don't know. I surrender I want to know. Just surrender. <laughs> and there it is. It's as immediate as that. It's one step. The scientist will go through many, many, many steps. One step. And I don't know if any of you met it in the exercise, but as we surrender and come to rest, that's it. It's that immediate, myself, immediate. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, nothing to achieve, nothing to lose, nothing to fear. Unmoving, eternal ungraspable. <laughs> it just is. <laughs> Everything that I conjure up is over here somewhere.
Any help? Thank you very much, yes. Good. There was a gentleman at the back there. Thank you, Michael. Just another question, if I may, on this disunity with self. You spoke about it and kind of wallpapered over it a bit because uh, it troubled me during the course, as you know, and it still troubles me. I just wonder how we get to that point of believing, you know, I am old, I am overweight, I am this, I am that, I am tired, I am hungry, I am lonely, whatever. If you would, just for a few minutes as we're talking about unity, maybe just clarify again for me the disunity or the disidentification thing. Identification, yeah. Yeah, because it, it does trouble me, you know, and it's on right. unity, and there is the unity of self, which I think is at the core of a lot of this stuff. Thank you. You are very hard on yourself. You weren't talking about yourself, of course, were you? <laughs> all of the things we say, but I am busy, I am old, I am sick, all of those things, that is a process of identification. And that process of identification is my sense of I. And it helps us to get things done. Without it, we could not operate in the world. What needs to be refined is the idea that that is all that I am, that I am just the appearance. In philosophy, the pursuit of wisdom is the realization that while the body is old and the life is busy, and that I'm none of those. In truth, I am none of those. Now you can continue on being busy, continue on being effective, continue on whatever. But the difference between the ignorant view and the enlightened view is under ignorance, we think we are the appearance or the object. And in wisdom is the realization that that is just an appearance that just rises and falls. And it's that difference. It's a tiny little difference, but it makes all the difference. And also the I in I am tired, I am busy, that I is myself. It's just become identified with things in the world and in that, the limit comes in, the ignorance comes in, and with that, everything that happens to that entity, we believe is happening to me. So that's a difficult, that's a... And if you take it then with the likes of, say, Nelson Mandela, or people who are in concentration camps, and right. they report stories where they're happy, is that the same? Well, absolutely, absolutely. The notion of the identified state is that my happiness depends on how this world treats me, how my friends treat me, how the world treats me, the business treats me, and so on and so forth. The realization of the, the truth about myself is the realization that my happiness does not depend on any external factor. I can be happy in a concentration camp, and I can have the wealth of the world and be as miserable <coughs> as sin. Some of you remember the story I told you about a friend of mine who was an extremely wealthy man. I mean, tens of millions of pounds, extremely wealthy. But happiness is not a word that comes to mind when I think of him. He had become very miserable. Some of you will have heard the story, but I rang him on Christmas Day. He's living in Guernsey as a tax exile. <laughs> I rang him on Christmas Day he was in a house on his own. The heating had broken down, he told me. I suspect he hadn't ordered the oil. <laughs> he 
He was sitting on Christmas Day with an electric fire on his own in a house with untold millions of pounds in the bank. And what was really frightening was, and it slipped out in the conversation, mine was the only telephone call he got on the day. So, you can have lots of the world's goodies and be as miserable. And you can have nothing. Or you can even be in very difficult circumstances and be happy. And the difference between the two is the realization that what I am. Happiness is my natural birthright. My nature is happiness. Unhappiness is an artificial condition which I have contrived to bring about, usually through ignorance. If you're not happy, take a philosophy course like a flash. <laughs> Would it be not quite easy to, when you look at the two different areas that you've talked to us about tonight, one is quite easy to miss and one is very in your face and wouldn't it be quite easy to be totally distracted by one and not see the other and the differences would be that the scientific phenomenal world one is the ease the one in your face yes yes yeah well certainly you have put the case very well um, we look out through the senses we see the phenomenal world we are impressed, we are mesmerized, we are taken in, and we believe the phenomenal world to be the real world. And therefore, we are caught up with what happens in the phenomenal world. But right from the beginning, the sages, the great teachers of mankind, as far back as you can go, and all the way through, right up to the present day, are saying, hold it, stop, be still. The kingdom of heaven is within you. You're looking in the wrong place. And chasing the phenomenal world will keep you going all the days of your life. Looking for the truth. You go to all the courses. Read all the books. Go to all the talks. Until finally the penny drops. That the truth is not out there is not the object of searching and knowledge. It is that in us, the unchanging in us, which supports everything and out of which everything arises and into which everything returns. And the way to find that, fall still. Not through thinking, not even through explanations, not even through answering questions. <laughs> fall still. <laughs> so could I ask as well then that you know, what we think of as making us individual and what we understand as our personalities, is that part of the wrong area to be looking in as well? Right. Well, certainly we're all individual and certainly we all have different personalities, no doubt about that. And the object of the exercise is not to deny that. It's a wonderful thing to be born in human form and to have a, a human life. That's not the problem. The problem is to think that that human form and personality is 
ultimate or real or true. And to miss the underlying reality, which is where the truth lies. Um, if we think this, this body, mind and heart is it, well then, that's the extent of our view. But they're all subject to change. And as we all know, they come and go. Well, what the sages are saying is that what you truly are is eternal, immortal, unchanging. And that is not in the phenomenal, it's just behind it. And you can understand why you would miss it, because it doesn't impose itself. To find it, you have to stop all the doing and be still. Our culture is do, seek, understand, pursue, find. And so we keep going, 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 going. So the personality is fine, the body is fine, but that's what they are. They are appearances like the cup and saucer. And what we're really after is the underlying clay, that out of which they arise and to which they return, which itself does not change. That's where we're being pointed all the time. And the discovery of that brings about the unity with everything and everyone. And the effect of that, instant happiness, peace, and contentment. I just maybe refer back to when you started, like I mentioned, like that sages were dealing in simplicity. The message of philosophy seems to be there's nothing more simple when you sitting down and be still, to have understanding, to have knowledge. You gave a very very analogous there, which were clarified clarified certain things. But for me, like you know, when you ask us to disclose our eyes and experience the listening, you really clarify like the known and the knower like. I just completely aware that it was a knower like being aware of the listening. Yes. Like and I've done it a lot of times in philosophy before, but it never was as clear as it was in that particular instance, right? You know, the, the certainty there was a known which was listening, and there were, you know, it was definitely was the, was the knower, which was all your... Right, well, the sounds would be the, the known, the sounds yeah, that come yeah, and go, yes, yeah, sure, sure. Well, that's very good. Well, that becomes a direct experience, and that direct experience is what you rely on, rather than the exposition or the examples or so on. Yes, indeed. And could I just ask you, if you were asked to describe the experience, what words would you use to describe it? Simplicity. It was simple? It was just simple. Right. And it was just, you, it's just something you arrive at rather than strive towards. Sure, sure, sure. You know. It's just there. It's, it's just, you ju just become aware Got of it. it. Yeah. Well, that's what the sages are saying. They're also saying that it was blissful. Can you... I could have sat there for, for a long time. For yeah. And they're all saying because it's unchanging, there isn't the usual sense of time and so on and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's excellent. To have an experience like that is worth 10 lectures or 100 lectures, you know, to be able to actually meet it because it, it becomes real for you, which is great. Thank you very much. I was just surprised at your questions after that exercise. 
because I felt that I couldn't really answer yes to them. You know, is this the same hearing that everybody else hears? With, and I yeah. went, yes, and I was saying no. <laughs> right. Because I felt that, you know, my hearing could be different to the people beside me. Right. You know, just, and it changes over the years. Right. But just follow the question through for a moment. The question, in a very short time we tried to do it now, but the idea was the sounds that people hear are very often different, even in the same room. But is the hearing which we use to hear those sounds, is that different? You see, I think it is. But, you so know, that I means, wonder how can you say... Right, well, just, just follow through now for a moment. Let's see if you can help us with this. That would mean that all of us in this room would have different hearing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that the hearing would be different. Yeah. But we'll say if I'm... I have perfect hearing, but yet, you know, somebody else will hear something that I don't. Or we say, take my father, for example, he has a hearing aid. Yes. So our hear my hearing is quite different from his. Yes. But the difference is a difference in degree. It's not a difference in type. It's all hearing. Mm -hmm. Whether it is a baby, perfect hearing, or assisted hearing. The hearing is the same. But the sounds are different. And even the quality of the sounds are different. But if you can make the distinction between the sounds which come and go mm -hmm. and the hearing which is there, whether there are sounds or not, if you can make that distinction, then you have moved from the ever-changing to that which does not change. That's a very it's a subtle, subtle change. Mm -hmm. And would you say it's the same for all the senses, for the other senses? Then? Yeah, yeah. Smelling, we all have the same. We just use hearing because it's, it's particularly useful. But the senses are the same. How we use them or experience them in terms of their objects can be different. So people in this room can hear different sounds, can hear different quality of sounds. Some people can hear more than others, but the hearing is the same. But it must be different then from shared hearing. You know, I, I, I can't kind of grasp I know it's difficult. I same. know it's difficult. And I'm saying to myself, so it must be different. You're not talking about shared hearing. No, it's just hearing. Just hearing. Yeah, mm. it's just hearing. The idea would be to try and break the connection. We don't normally make this distinction, just me hearing. But all of us in this room, as this conversation is proceeding between us now, are hearing it. We may be hearing it differently. We may be interpreting it differently. But that which we use to hear it, actual hearing itself, is the same. It's a very good place to be just to consider that, because if you could make that connection or make that jump, then you moved, as the sages are saying, from the changing and the difference to that which is the same. Mm -hmm. So it's a very useful place to be and have a look. Don't write it off, just stay with it, stay with the question. Yeah. The other thing I was wondering, I think I missed this point as well in the talk, where you had the knowledge, consciousness, and, and bliss. bliss. Yeah. And I just wonder how we arrived at that. You know, right. say the sages and the scientists I was following their yeah, journey. We're going all right up to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'm happy with the knowledge, consciousness, and bliss. But I just wonder, I feel there's just something missing there at how we actually arrived at that. Well, again, in a short talk, we try to illustrate it using reason. 
and the rationale was that the sages were dealing with the knower end of the diagram. You remember the knower and the known, right? And the sage's breakthrough was that you could not have a knower who did not know, right? So therefore, the knower who knows, is that's knowledge, okay? So knowledge is an aspect of that ultimate awareness, okay? And you, neither could you have a knower that was not conscious. So you can say that the ultimate is knowledge and it is consciousness. And in unifying with it, the sages reported that it was blissful. And that's how the three, and we put it to the test by saying that these are our ultimate qualities. And we put it to the test by asking the group why we came here tonight. And we find that knowledge, consciousness, and happiness rule, even at a very remote distance, they govern what we do. What we do is done either to know, to live a full life, or to be happy. So there's a kind of an empirical proof, if you like, along with the reason that these are the qualities of my true self operating in me, even as I go about in my ignorance, mm -hmm. they operate. Right. I want to be happy, I want to know, I mean, the ladies know that, you want to know everything. You don't want to know just a bit, you want to know everything. <laughs> Is that good? <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks very much. Uh, okay, so does that help uh, bridge yeah. the gap? Yeah, good. Could I possibly ask another question? Sure. Um, you were suggesting that the, the, or this seemed to be to me, that you're suggesting that the search starts at the level of body, mind, and heart, and, but it doesn't end there, or it can't end there. Right. Well, whatever about the start, body, mind, and heart, which are dear to us, here they are, the physical body, the mind which keeps us busy, and the heart which feels everything, uh, are, to use your own words, they're in our face. And the realization, based on the direction of the sages, is that they are not ultimate. They are not ultimately what I am. They are appearances on the consciousness. That the mind is bright or dull or thinks or reasons because of the consciousness. The body moves and is formed because of the consciousness. And the heart feels and is lit by the consciousness. Take the consciousness away and you have an unthinking, unmoving, <laughs> unfailing entity. <laughs> so where the sages are at is saying, don't get caught up with the phenomenal, with what you can see and feel and so on. Just go beyond that and discover your true self, which simply is has no changes, doesn't change, and is the seat of happiness and contentment and fulfillment. They direct us there. And it looks like they have to keep directing us there because, as you say, we are impressed with the phenomenal. We are dazzled by it. Because what a show it is. It's just fabulous. <laughs> Ever-changing. And the bet is that if you walked all the way to the top of the Himalayas and met a wise man and said, help me discover the truth, he would tell you, be still. Be.
rather than thinking, if you like. And again, you need the thinking to deal with the phenomenal world, but it's not the truth. You need the body to get around, but it's not the truth. It appears, it has an apparent existence, it has no independent existence. And if we miss the reality underlying, then we miss the truth, and we are taken in by the phenomenal. I don't know if that's going around in circles or not, but there you are. So the sages asked the question, what am I? They came to the conclusion very quickly, not the body, not the mind, not the feelings. I'm that which lies beyond those, because I can see the body, I can feel the feelings, I can see what's going on in the mind, they can't be ultimate. So where does the truth lie? Through reason, coming to the stillness, and merging with the awareness itself, was their discovery. And it doesn't take thousands of years to do that, it takes a couple of minutes to do that. You can fall still, leave the body still, leave the mind, and just simply be. And wait for the scientists to catch up. <laughs> what I'm wondering is to go into that state of being, of letting go of, you know, the outer world, if you like, and, and to get into that, that state of being and uh, being who I truly am. And to be mindful in that, would you see that, I suppose, sort of practicing or, or to be conscious of that awareness? that in a sense, is there a growth in your consciousness? Is there a growth in your awareness? We just have to be careful not to make the mistake of thinking that consciousness grows or contracts. Consciousness doesn't. The consciousness simply is. But there is that in us which can be more aware or less aware, certainly. It's all one. But it's, it's more awareness, maybe it's more awareness of that aspect. Yes, it's a, it's a very good point. It's the substance it's working through. The consciousness is the same, but depending on the substance it's working through, there is either greater or less light or clarity. So it's actually letting go. The key to it is let go. The electricity is one. It flows into a kitchen. Depending on what it's working through, it's quite different. In a fridge, it's freezing. In a kettle, it's boiling. In a dishwasher, it's washing. In an iron, it's flattening. But it remains the same. The difference is not in the electricity, it's in the nature of the object it's working through. And it's the same with the individuals. The consciousness is the same. The differences are in the equipment. <laughs> human or otherwise. <laughs> and there can be attachments and all of that kind of stuff. Certainly. So that's the proposition. Where does the truth lie? In difference or in unity? In our world, based on what we do, what we chase, what we pursue, what we hoard, it would seem that we believe that the truth lies in the difference, in me and mine. That's the very popular view. 
Now there is another view. And you only have to just look up and it's all around us, the other view, which says there, phenomenal comes to pass, the truth simply is. Bodies come and go, what you are does not come and go. Ultimately, you are that unchanging, eternal knowledge, consciousness and bliss absent. came to you at a particular time in your life? In other words, when did the penny drop? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I do remember a moment when the penny dropped. I remember nearly falling off the seat, in fact. I was in a class, in a philosophy class, and the lesson was that you cannot be what you observe. I still remember them all. I don't remember a lot. But I remember that moment, all right. That you cannot be what you observe. That there was something beyond the ego and the thinking mind because it was all under observation. And did you feel that from then on it changed some of your life or how you saw things? Or You should have seen me before I took this course. <laughs> 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 well, here I still am all these years later. certainly does have an effect. The way it works, as we fall still, discrimination rises in us. And it's not the big struggle or anything like that, but you're naturally drawn to what's useful and you move away from what's useless. It no longer has any interest for you. I think that change does take place over time. And it, it does I don't think it, it does take place over time. I can say that from direct experience and from looking at others who have worked in that way. Is there anybody here who would like to ask a question but haven't got the courage or whatever it takes to, uh, <laughs> or don't want to expose themselves? You could whisper to the person beside you, perhaps. Or have we dealt with everything? You mentioned mind and body and heart. Do you believe we have a soul? Certainly. Certainly. I mean, that, that's the, where we're all headed. Well, there's the physical aspect of us, there's the mental aspect of us, and there's the spiritual aspect of us. What we've been talking about tonight is how we are caught with the physical and the mental, and how easy it is to miss the spiritual. And if you're to go with what the sages are saying, it is possible for us to literally merge with the spiritual, and without necessarily having to die first, merge with the spiritual and be in peace and bliss. Well, if that's it, ladies and gentlemen, it just falls to me to say thank you very much for coming and for your interest in this subject. It's not an easy subject, but it is a fundamental subject. I hope you found the conversation stimulating. And just to round it off, it only takes two minutes. I'm just going to ask you to join me just to fall still for a moment. Now, any resistance to doing this, 
is part of the problem that we have to face. And it is quite immediate, you will see this now, as we put our attention, we control our attention, put your attention with the hearing, and let the hearing go wide, and allow the sounds to come and to pass. The hearing will bring you immediately into the present moment, and open the hearing wide. Just let the, take the attention out to all the sounds in the house and the city outside. Just allow them to come and to pass. These are the changing, ever-changing phenomena. And the hearing simply is. So let the sounds come and go. And see if it's possible to refine the hearing to the furthest and gentlest sounds. And now surrender any thinking and just allow the attention rest in the silence out of which all these sounds arise and into which they return. And resting in the true self is where the nourishment is to face whatever life throws at us with equanimity. Very good. Thank you very much. Good night, everybody. Thank you very much.